in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Lord, It's our regular habit and pattern to worship on Sunday because it is the day of the week that you raised from the dead and brought newness of life to all of those people for whom you died. This Sunday we set apart specially to specifically remember that event so that we would be routinely year after year, and Lord, we pray week after week, reminded of the great cost, but great grace and great salvation that we have through you and your amazing work of atonement for us. Lord, this is the life that we have. This is our hope. This is the very reason why we can exist As Christians, because you died for our sins and rose from the dead. And oh Lord, we love you, we love you, we love you, and we praise you for this great grace that you've seen fit to give to us. Oh Jesus, I pray that tonight you would fill us with your spirit, that we might, as we're reminded of this truth, be just caught up into the heavenlies, Lord. We want to think about you. We want to be with you. We want to know you. Oh, Lord, we love you, Jesus. So take all of the words that we're about to hear out of the mouth of this broken pot of a vessel and use them for your glory in the life of your people, Lord Jesus. Lord, we do truly pray that we would walk out of here knowing you better and more in love with you than we were when we came in. For your name's sake, we worship you and praise you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I, when I was in Bible college, I went to Israel. It, 
if you can ever do that, it's certainly something that is worth doing. It's not because you go to these places and, you know, some people think of it kind of like kissing the Blarney Stone. Right? You know what I mean? You're in Ireland and you lean over the thing and you, and you hopefully get the luck or whatever, right? Well, some people have the idea of you go to Israel and you go to these holy sites and you get some of the holy mojo from whatever happened there that rubs off on you. Don't go there thinking that. Let me dispel that myth right now. No, we go there because we see things and places that we can look at in the Bible and know and have our faith strengthened. Not that we have to go there to have our faith strengthened, but it certainly is a good thing to do. And I remember on my trip that we were going all around and seeing all the sights and we got to the garden tomb and it was pouring rain like yesterday you know yesterday when that storm come through and it was just like dumping for like a half hour like crazy it was like that so we got to the garden tomb and on the bus you know people were kind of ushering out and kind of like not sure if they wanted to get out and go out into the rain and I was one of the ones that was kind of still lingering back behind and this caught the attention of the president of the Bible college who went with us. And he came back specifically to me. And No, at this point, I'd only been Christian for about a year and uh, about a year and a half, two years. Maybe not quite two years. Yeah, about two years. And believe it or not, I'm a little rough around the edges at this point. And I, 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 I'm not everyone's cup of tea And now that's true too, but it was even more so back then. And God bless Larry Taylor. He is one of the godly men I seek to emulate in my life. And he came up to me and he put his hand on me and he came down and whispered in my ear. And he's like, if you see nothing else while we're here, this is the stop you need to get out on. And I'm dumb and young and in Bible college. And I'm like, okay. I like theatrics. We saw a lot of that while we were there, you know. And so I'm expecting to go down and there to be like a... And then there's this cave and, you know, it's like empty. And you're like, oh, yeah, this really didn't happen here. I know. But thank you for trying, you know, kind of thing. Which is some of the experience that I had. But as we went down and it was pouring, like I said, pouring down rain and went in there. In my mind, I'm like, gosh, I just want to get out of the rain. And so the tomb that they have there is only big enough for maybe two or three people at a a time. And because not a bunch of people were there with me, because some of them stayed behind, I was in there by myself for a moment. And I just prayed, Lord, this is important. I gather, help me see this. And I stood there for a minute and I looked at this little carved bench and whether this is the tomb or not, we don't know. Probably isn't, if I'm perfectly honest. But something in that moment struck me and it wasn't the visual that I was seeing. Because I began to think, why is this Even if it's made up, why is this reality of the resurrection something that should be so important to me? 
And I began to think on my sins there in that moment. And I began to think on my own depravity. And I began to think on the great and massive distance between God Almighty, the holy God of the universe, who created everything with the word of his power, and he flung all of the universe into existence in one moment, every single atom all the way to the biggest, darkest black hole, all at once, and he, with all the sheer force of his existence, holds it all into being, and he would see fit to look down on this tiny little speck of dust spinning around in his universe and have grace and compassion upon me? in that moment struck me and blew my mind. And beloved, we're sitting here and I hope as you sing, this is what we're supposed to do when we sing. Mean the words. It's so easy to know the songs and just sing them and it's filler to get to the sermon kind of thing. But We sing the words because we mean the words. And I was singing here and I was just struck. I was praying, Lord, I want to be struck with you here in this moment. And I just was thinking again afresh about this resurrection. And it gripped me again. Beloved, listen. The resurrection. And I don't think I'm overstating this is the most important truth for our salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. The cross and the resurrection is like a car with an engine and the wheels. You can't have one without the other, right? You have no engine and a car with wheels, you're not going anywhere. You might as well walk. You have an engine in a car without wheels? Again, you're not going anywhere, even if that engine runs. The cross and the resurrection are like that. You have no salvation apart from the cross of Christ. But the resurrection is the proof that indeed Christ's death satisfied God's judgment that you deserve. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus Christ accomplished what he came to do. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so important that Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is frankly the only message that we have for the lost and dying world that's out there. We can go around and we can talk about how many animals fit into Noah's Ark. We can talk about quantum physics. We can talk about all you, you know, whatever kinds of things get people all caught up with in terms of apologetic method. But when it comes down to it, we have a singular message. Jesus Christ and him crucified, raised from the dead for your sins. And beloved, know this, that if that is true for them, it's just as true for you. And you need to hear this message again and again and again and again, because the gospel is not just the means by which you got saved. The gospel is the means by which you stay saved. And the gospel is the means by which God is going to get you into his heaven. It's all of him. It's all of him. It's all of him. It's all of him. 
The resurrection is the most important truth. In fact, he goes on here in 1 Corinthians 15 to say this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Feel the weight of that. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. Then there is no faith. This is why I say the resurrection is the singular most important truth because if there is no resurrection, the rest of this is worthless. You sitting here listening to me talk, singing songs, going to partake of communion is worthless. Every prayer you've ever prayed is pointless. But if it is true, and it is, and if the gospel is true, and it is, then beloved, it is the very life for us. There is nothing more important than these truths right here. When I tell people uh, I'm in the funeral industry, I get a couple of different reactions. Sometimes, like this morning, I was going through the local drive through coffee place. And as I was going through, of course, they talk to you. Hey, how's it going? What's up? Kind of thing, right? And as I'm engaging this person, this person says to me, so what do you do? And I say, I work at a funeral home. And this is the reaction that I typically get. Oh, your drink will be up in a minute. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's, yeah, I get it. I get it. It's, it. People, especially in our culture, don't deal with death well. The other reaction I get is they want to hear stories. Ooh, it's so interesting. Ooh, tell me about it. But one thing nobody ever has done yet, and I can imagine nobody's ever going to do, is say, so how many people have you seen rise from the dead? How many? Huh? Three? Four? One? Huh? Of course, that's not a question anybody's going to ask. Why? Why does nobody ask me that question? Sitting in the window of the drive through coffee joint. Why does nobody ask me that question when I'm talking with them across the table at a meal or over at one of the other places? Where, why, does that not, why does that question not get asked? Because people don't raise from the dead. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is preaching to a group of people and as he's preaching to this group of people he gets to the very end of that sermon and he says that God proved that he is saving people by raising Jesus from the dead and everyone laughed at him at that point it says and said "Ah, okay rising from the dead sure and they walked away and a few stayed around and listened to him 
They laughed at him because people don't raise from the dead. So it is something absolutely miraculous, absolutely unique in history, absolutely radical for us to hinge our entire faith on an act that we all admit doesn't ever happen. And yet everything we believe hinges on that event happening. In, look back at Luke with me. Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. This is just after the resurrection. If you're familiar with the gospel of Luke, Jesus has already met a couple of guys on what is famously called the road to Emmaus and has encountered them and has preached what was probably an amazing sermon to them through the Old Testament. And then the disciples are all sitting around talking about this, going, what in the world? It's crazy, man, right? People rising from the dead? And that's weird, right? What do we think about that? Well, it says they were sitting around talking about these things in verse 36. Then Jesus himself stood among them. (laughs) Do, Do you not love how understated the Bible is? Isn't that something you want at least two chapters about? He just showed up and was standing among them? What? Another one is we want to know what happened at the resurrection, right? Theatrically, we would think there was a great big beam of light and Jesus rose up from the, whatever he was laying on and the, the clothes just burned off of him with this intense heat and he just stood up and didn't even actually stand up but floated and the stone rolled away on its own as he just, right out the door, right? We don't have any of that. It doesn't tell us how it happened. Because you know what? It doesn't need to. The point isn't how it happened. The point isn't the spooky hookies. The point is it did happen. And the point is you need to know why. And that's because you are a sinner. I am a sinner. And my sin is an offense to God. An offense to God. I commit what R.C. Sproul says is cosmic treason. Cosmic doesn't even do it. That's an understatement itself. I commit heavenly treason. Eternal treason against God Almighty with my sin. I violate his law. I shake my fist and I go, I'm going to do what I want to do. Who in the world do you think you are, God, to tell me? And I've lived my life like that. And frankly, I still struggle with that old man that wants that power and wants to live his own way over and over and over again. And so Jesus, when he comes and he stands among them, the point isn't how did he do that? The point is he did do that. And what he's about to say for why he did that. Peace to you. Well, verse 37, they were startled and frightened and thought they had seen a spirit. He said to them, whoa, 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 whoa. Why are you so troubled? Why are doubts arising within your heart? See my hands. See my feet. Look, it is myself. Touch me and see. See, a spirit does not have flesh and bones 
as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. This is important. He does this to demonstrate that the exact same body he died with was the exact same body he's raised with. You see, if he didn't raise in the same body, meaning he only arose spiritually, or he arose with a new body, then that's an indication to us that his sacrifice wasn't accepted. That there was some sin found in him, and his the wages of sin is what? Death, but the gift of God is everlasting life. So if the wages of sin is death and Jesus stayed dead and the resurrection was only something spiritual or only something else, then guess what? Jesus sinned and we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. You see, Jesus does this to demonstrate he was in fact received by the Father. His death was accepted. When he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was not the end. Which is what they thought, right? I mean, they scattered, right? They fled, right? They left, they ran away. They hid, they cowered. Because of the death of Jesus Christ. In fact, when they are... When, up here, they're in the upper room, kind of hiding. But Jesus shows them, so he demonstrates to them, my death was not the end. My death was the means by which the beginning for you has come. You want new life? You want new birth? You want to be saved from your sins? You want the atonement? Here it is. Proof right in front of you. In fact, he goes so far as to eat to show them, yeah, I'm still a guy. A resurrected, glorified man. So then he said to him, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for sin, pardon me, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He opens their mind to understand these things. This is why as we go through the book of Acts, in fact, we could do that if we wanted to, and maybe we'll look at a couple of these here, but when the apostles get up to preach the gospel. What typically passes for an American gospel presentation or invitation 
doesn't seem to fit. Right? The American gospel invitation is, you know what? Jesus died for all, and look what he did. He did everything he could for you, and you know what? He cast his vote for you. Satan cast his vote against you, and now it's up to you to make the deciding vote. Or you might hear, you know what? I bet your life is really bad right now. It's really tough. It's really hard. If you turn to Christ, it'll get better. He will make you better. Come forward if you want to be better. Are you struggling in your marriage? Are you struggling at work? Are you struggling with this? Are you struggling with that? Jesus will take it all away from you. Now, can Jesus do that? Sure. Does he promise that? No, he doesn't. In fact, a lot of times we go through a whole lot more difficult things as a Christian than we did before we were in Christ. What does he say he will do? What does he say is promised? What does he teach us is the truth of the gospel? He says Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. What's the promise? If you repent, meaning turn from your sins, he will forgive. That's the promise. The gospel is you've sinned against holy God. You've sinned against King Jesus. And in his authority, he stands in judgment against you in all righteousness, in all holiness, in all judgment. Rightly so. But by his grace, by his grace, he has seen fit to take people and save them from their sins. Changing them from the inside out. We love this phrase here, taking out their heart of stone and putting within them a heart of flesh. Right? Jesus says in John chapter 3, you must be born what, beloved? Again. You must be born again. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins, as you do that, you experience that new birth. Those very first things. When a baby's born, right? Babies. We love babies, right? Oh, we love babies. Goody, goody. When that baby's born, one of the very first things, the doctor, midwife, mama, papa, whoever gets baby to do is to start breathing. Sometimes it's a little to get that baby crying, right? But it's just the very first thing. It's instinctual. It's what we do is breathe or cry out. And this is what that very first instinct as we're born again to do is repent of our sins because now we have new life, new breath, new affections, new eyes to see, new ears to hear, new heart that pumps within us, new life and vibrancy, a new spirit. And we, as we repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in this act, death, burial, and resurrection, for me personally, I am renewed and forgiven of all my sins. Right? 1 John chapter 1. That if you confess your sins, repent. 
God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's the gospel message. Frankly, that's harder to preach because it doesn't mean a better you. It means a forgiven you. You still might have all your warts and all. You still might be a person who is being and needs a lot of sanctification. Case in point. (laughs) But as I grow in Christ and become more like him, the Lord forms me more into his image. But the message of the gospel is that's a difficult one. And it was in Jesus' day. It was in the apostles' day. There's a lot of pushback against it. But they preached the resurrection over and over. Let's look at a couple of them. Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2. As you're turning there, you know this passage, right? This is the first sermon that's ever preached. The Holy Spirit comes upon the 120 in the upper room, and they go out and they speak in tongues. Can I give you a parenthesis here? Do you, you want a little bonus? You want a little bonus? No? Yeah? I'm giving you one anyways. Tongues is a sign of judgment. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It was a judgment on the nation of Israel that God had not doing something with the nation of Israel anymore, but was now expanding his grace out to the world. It wasn't a blessing in terms of what it was communicating. It was a manifestation of God's judgment against a rebellious people. That's what tongues is. So they go around and they start proclaiming the glories of God. They're actually proclaiming a message of judgment. And the people's ears perk up because they're like, why is all this foreign tongue being spoken in the city of Jerusalem? Good question, right? They're used to Hebrew, maybe Greek. But in in Acts 2, you see all manner of tongues being spoken there. And they're proclaiming the glories of God. They gather everybody together, multitudes of people. And Peter stands up as this multitude is gathered. And he lays the hammer down. He says, King Jesus came in the lineage of David and you rejected him. He came to sit on David's throne and you killed him. What are you going to do with that? Now that's my paraphrase. But read it. That's what he says. He, no altar call. <laughs> no with your eyes closed and your hand lifted high. It was King Jesus, God Almighty, Son of God in the flesh came. And he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And you took him and you pinned him to a tree and watched him die. They said, what must we do to be saved? What are we going to do? He says, Jesus, God raised up. And we are all witnesses of the resurrection. You did this damnable thing. God raised him up. You killed him. Death could not hold him. You did what you thought you could do to him. But he was triumphant over what you tried to do. Ending his life. He died according to the scriptures and has been raised by God Almighty to prove once and for all that he would do what he set out to do. Verse 33, being therefore, because he's raised from the dead, 
exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out to you, on you, what you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until your enemies will be made for your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, what do we do? What do we do? Well, Jesus had told them what to answer, right? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Repent and believe. Repent and believe, and you will be forgiven. That's the gospel message. Jesus told them to preach it. They begin to preach it. Acts chapter 4. You remember in Acts 3, you maybe know the song from a little kid's song. You know, uh, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to thee. Rise up and take, that's, that's bad. We can edit that out, I hope. But that's, that's bad, okay. We don't have any silver and gold, but what I have I give to you. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And he starts leaping and jumping and praising God. And as he's doing that, everyone takes note of it. Well, Peter and John are called in before the Sanhedrin because that was a no-no, right? So in chapter 4, let's begin in verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means he has been been healed, listen up, verse 10, this is it, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you, And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, but has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven, among men, by which we must be saved. Whoo! That's a spine tingler right there, right? Hot diggity. He just digs right in there, and he brings the point home through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, none of this has any value None of this has any meaning. None of this has any potential to move or do anything in anybody except for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 10, I'll sum up this one. Peter, he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time in the house of Cornelius. And there in verses 34 through 40, he proclaims the gospel message and he declares that it's by the resurrection of Jesus Christ that anyone has salvation. He's preaching it to the Gentiles for the first time, indicating the resurrection didn't just have purpose for the Jew, the Samaritan, but everybody. That his death is for the world. And as we go out and we proclaim this gospel message, 
to the world, we can be certain that God will save his people. God will do his work because God raised Jesus from the dead. And it is not harder for him to save you than it was for him to resurrect Jesus from the dead. In Acts chapter 13, there's this great sermon. In fact, if you just want to go home on a Sunday afternoon and sit and just read a hot diggity passage from the New Testament, read Acts chapter 13. It's a good sermon there. Acts chapter 13, though, he's preaching the gospel here in Antioch, and the Apostle Paul says this, verse uh, 30, but now verse 28, 29, when they had carried out all that was written of him, meaning that they crucified him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we bring the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he spoke in this way, I give you the Holy One, sure blessings of David. Therefore, in another Psalm, you shall not let your Holy One see corruption. For after he had served David, the purpose of God in his own generation, David fell asleep. He laid with the fathers. He saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from under the law of Moses. He goes on from there. But boy, oh boy, what a great passage. The law of Moses couldn't save you. So Christ came and lived perfectly in a consistent manner with the law of Moses. Perfectly. And he fulfilled the law. And upon fulfilling the law, God raised him from the dead because he had never sinned but only lived perfectly. So when God poured out all of his judgment upon Jesus for sin, he was treating Jesus as if he had committed my sin, your sin, and all the sin of anybody who had ever believed, was believing, or will ever believe in the future in Jesus Christ. Now on and on and on I can go, right? The resurrection is vital to us. So when we come together, we come together here on this Easter Sunday, and we don't come together just to hear a really nice, good pep talk. You know, some people, I, you know, preach sermons out of the resurrection passage and say, you know what, God rolled away his stone, now he's giving you the power, you can roll away your stones. That's absurd. Absolutely absurd on its face. Christ rolled away that stone so that he could drag a dead and decaying and rotten, wretched corpse of a person out into his light, cause him to be born again, and breathe new life into him. 
That's what the gospel does. That's what Jesus Christ does. That's what the resurrection does. When we come together and we worship every Sunday, but especially here on this Easter Sunday, we're reminded of the power of God in saving us from our sins and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection. We look forward to the day where we're going to be with him. And I would be remiss if I didn't read one of my most favorite passages as we close from 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, you probably know where I'm going already. See, I like behold better. I'm going to use that, okay? Sorry, ESV. Behold, behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. We are. We are. We are the children of God. You see, the reason why the world does not know Jesus, does not know him, or pardon me, does not know us, is because they did not know him. But beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be like has not yet been revealed now. But we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. How was Jesus upon the resurrection? Well, he still was a man, wasn't he? But he was glorified. So what will we be like? We don't know, but we know this, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is the resurrection hope, beloved. Newness of life began when you first believed in the gospel and you became born again. But it doesn't end there. The gospel is the very fabric of our life all the way through and even into heaven. Because it, this is the hope we have right here. This is the end of the gospel hope. And everyone, listen, verse 3, who has this hope purifies himself even as Jesus, even as he is pure. How pure is Christ? Pure enough for God to raise him from the dead. Because the wages of sin is death, but there was no death on him. And so therefore, there was no sin upon him. So therefore, death could not hold him. Beloved, the purity of our lives, the holiness of our lives, comes through our faith and confidence as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the reason we pray, may we leave here knowing you better and being more in love with you than we did when we came in, not for warm fuzzies. Not for hoo-hoo-hoo. It's for purity and holiness and righteous living because of the grace he's given to us in Jesus Christ. So as we continue to sing and we celebrate the Lord's Supper here, I pray that you would have in this, this in your mind. Lord, save me from my sins. You died for me so that I can have life and you rose from the dead to prove once for all time that for those of us who believe and trust in you and you alone, you will give us everlasting life. That's the resurrection story. That's happy Easter if there ever was one. Lord, we thank you and we pray that you would take 
this glorious truth, this glorious hope, this glorious focus of our resurrected lives that we have in you because of your resurrection. And may we experience that purity that 1 John speaks about as we see you in your glory and we desire and long to be more like you, Lord. Long a desire to hope in you more. Long and desire to live lives that are pleasing to you more and more. May we think about you. May we talk about you. May we rejoice in you. May we sing about you. Pray to you. May our lives be consumed with you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.